back into this verse right there that he worshipped on the bed. The idea being, though, that they're tying in this messianic revelation to this passage. So when Hebrews 11 does that, which Hebrews, oddly enough, actually is also chronologically out of order. It's Hebrews 11. It starts with, God. he he had faith, he blessed Ephraim and Menashe, which is the next chapter, and then he worshipped at the end of the bed. But it's like, wait a minute, that's the wrong order. That's not how it goes. So both Hebrews and the Midrash are trying on purpose to pull this verse, for some reason, into this Messianic revelation. And I think that that's why Hebrews ties us into faith, because he's saying, this isn't just a blessing that Jacob's giving. This is a belief in God's plan for humanity. Whether it's all the details or not, the point is, it's a belief that God is going to fix it, and here is how he's going to do it, in some format. And so Hebrews is saying, this is what faith ultimately looks like. It's not just believing that there is technically a God out there. It's not just believing that he has rules for us to follow. But that's part of it. That's, how, that's, our, that's a demonstration of our faith. But it's ultimately believing that he has a plan and that he is going to reward us if we respond correctly to him. Yes, sir. Uh, that was great. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to steal your, your no, comments. No, just, no, just my thought is so far in a different direction that it's not working. Well, we, we can transition here, you know. No, no. <laughs> All right, so we're, uh, we're still... I appreciate what you said, Greg. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm speaking prophetically. <laughs> so um, we have Menashe and Ephraim that come and visit Jacob, right? So Jacob has this... He's getting close to death. He brings them in. This is the next chapter. And again, remember I had mentioned before that one of the themes in this portion is is the look back. It's the pulling in the threads from the other previous accounts and tying them all up here. This is almost like uh, like the final chapter of a good book that finally gets all of the pieces kind of interwoven at the very end and you, you feel that satisfaction. They're doing this here with this imagery. Um, Jacob pull, asks for his sons and there's a lot of odd, like, repetitive language. In verse 8, then Israel saw Joseph's sons and he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. We've heard this exchange before with Jacob. It was many decades before. He comes into the land of Israel from Aram, and Esau, Esau meets him, and Esau looks at his family and says, Who are these? Or whose are these? Similar exchange. Who are these people? Jacob responds by saying, They're my children whom God has given me here uh, in another land. So we have almost the exact parallel. Here is a family member, doesn't recognize the children, asks who they are. The father responds by saying the ones that God has given me, remember that same language, and it was in the land of exile, both with Jacob and with Joseph. Now, I think the reason why God wants us to hearken back here is this goes back to, again, that idea of faith. Because when Hebrews 11, they're going to pull out the blessing to Ephraim and Menashe as the example of faith. Not the blessing to his sons. See, we recognize the messianic implications of the blessings to his sons. If I was writing Hebrews, I would have said, and Jacob had great faith, and he blessed all of his sons with the promise of Messiah. You know, the end. But Hebrews doesn't do that. It's like it's almost like they're, they're telling you there's something really cool here that you need to recognize. So part one, we talked about Jacob has his, has his faith in God's promises being fulfilled even after he's dead. That's cool. Part two, I believe, is a personal redemption for Jacob. Because one of the things uh, we really have enjoyed watching Rabbi David Foreman's videos, his little cartoons, on, and his team's uh, teachings on, on the Torah portions. And in the book of Genesis, they have pointed out how basically Jacob's whole life is like a bad sequel like to his previous childhood. Like He keeps repeating the same mistakes, or his children do, that he made before with Jacob and Esau, how Esau was favored by his father, and Jacob was favored by his mother, and then Jacob tricks Isaac to get the blessing from Esau, and this like theme of deceit and favoritism keeps falling into the story. It keeps reappearing. Well, I believe here, one of the things that Judaism teaches that um, is also taught in the Apostolic Scriptures is the idea of redemption, tikkun olam. So to make a tikkun, a repair, means you have to, in order to really repair something, you have to, in a sense, fix it the way it was broken. Go back. 
You have to, so the, the sages teach that true repentance is only illustrated when you're given this, the same temptation and the same opportunity to make the mistake you made before, and you don't this time. It's like literally getting a second chance. So in this case, what we see in this passage is Israel, Jacob, will undo some of the mistakes of his past and his family's past at the same time. So it starts with this illusion to get you thinking about Jacob and Esau. Oh, right, those two brothers. Well, now we have two brothers. And here is a patriarch, a grandfather in this case, an old, uh, who has the ability to give an important blessing who's getting ready to die. Well, the next verse, or, uh, or uh, yeah, the next verse after, after Joseph's story with Isaac, or uh, Joseph and Jacob exchange, now Israel's eyes were heavy with age, and he could not see. This is the same language again. Isaac can't see. This is how Jacob tricks him in the first place. Then it continues. He kissed them and hugged them. Again, same language. One of the things we see is that he, when, when uh, Jacob is offering the food, uh, Isaac's confused. He, he, he's like, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are Esau. So he, he asks him to come close and kisses him. And that's when he smells the garments and the goat hair and all of the stuff, and he, and he feels this sense of release that this is the person he's supposed to bless, and he delivers a blessing. So we have the same language here. Brings him close, and then the next exchange, Joseph brings his sons. One is older than the other, puts them both forward, and Jacob does one of these guys on him, and instead of blessing with the right hand's the hand of strength, Instead of blessing the oldest, he blesses the youngest. And he gives this blessing. And what I think is important, read what I think Hebrews 11 ties into this. I, mean, I think this is prophetic. All of the language up until this point has been bringing us back to the exchange where Jacob stole the blessing. What happened then? It wasn't wrong that Jacob received the blessing. He was supposed to. God had told Rebekah in prophecy he's going to get it. What was wrong was the way it was gotten. He tricks his father to receive the blessing. Um, there's a lot of miscommunication within the family, uh, why Rebecca's not telling the story, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of things going off here. And so in this particular instance, it's almost like, the, basically what it boiled down to is Isaac had a mis- whether he knew about the prophecy or not, regardless, there's a miscommunication, there's a problem. Isaac's the one getting the blessing. He should be aware of the prophecies, and he should be able to... In, in faith, give the blessing to the right person, even if they're not the oldest, because that's what God intended. So we see here with Jacob, Jacob's doing that. Jacob now is un, is repeating his father's story, but he's doing it in the right way. Now Jacob knows prophetically who is supposed to be blessed, and Jacob is fixing it by doing it. But notice that Jacob, when he does this, he actually has a confrontation with Joseph. Joseph doesn't like it. And Jacob, who up to this entire point in his life, more often than not, tends to run away or tell a lie whenever he's in trouble or pinned down or, you know, something to that effect. He has moments where he doesn't. He has great redemption in those. Now he's, he's, he's really feeling confident. And he just tells Joseph straight up, nah, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Yes, this son will be blessed. Oh, it's about to die. What am I going to do? Right, that's true. But this one, this one will get the bigger blessing. So I think in the story, you get this, you get this undoing. Jacob has now repeated his father's his experience with his father, but he's sort of reversed the whole story and reversed his reaction to it. And now you get this, this like sort of um, this tikkun for the people of Israel. It's important. This is the end of the patriarchs. We got to get the loop tied up, fix, close the book. Jacob does that, and I think that's why Hebrews 11 pulls out, because it's a personal redemption. It's a family redemption. Because what is it that Messiah came to do? He came to forgive, bring us forgiveness and pardon. There's faith in Messiah then for that. But part of that is repentance. You don't get to participate in the blessings that God offers through Messiah if you don't... It's not just an act of intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe it's Messiah. Yeah, I believe he took care. He's going to fix everything. You have to demonstrate it by actions, and that is repentance. And so what Jacob has done in the book of Hebrews 11, they bring these two pieces together. You have repentance, and you have faith, even when you can't see it. And I've got Actually, let, let uh, yeah. go first. Go ahead. So, um, so one thing that's interesting about this occasion 
is while Yaakov knows that Ephraim is supposed to get the blessing, Ephraim being the younger as opposed to the older, right? <clears throat> one could one could think, well, okay, if he knows this prophetically, then why didn't he have why didn't he have why didn't he move right. Ephraim to the right oh, okay. side and Manashe to the left? He doesn't do that. He keeps them in their right order. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's not saying he's he's not he's not saying to Ma, to, to, to uh, Manasseh, He's not saying you're not the oldest. Right. He's recognizing no, you are the oldest. You are on the right. But rather than cause them to change order, he he you know he switches his hands. Right. Right. <clears throat> so it's as if he's acknowledging the natural order. Even though, even though the blessing is going to happen differently, right? But I think there's also, so there's, I mean, there's obviously you know, deep prophetic stuff here that has all kinds of ramifications across the whole list of subjects. But one of the things that, that came to my attention this year is there's actually a really beautiful lesson for us in Ephraim and, and Manashe because these are the two sons that are born where? In Egypt. In exile. Mm -hmm. Right? All, uh, all, all the other, you know, all the other children were born in Israel and then, and, and then they'd come down, right? But Yosef, his two sons, were born in exile. And it's interesting that in this occasion... Yaakov adopts them as his own. He says, no, no, these two are now going to be my sons. Mm -hmm. Everyone, all your, all your offspring after these two are yours, Joseph, but these are mine because these were born, you know, these were born in Egypt before I, I arrived here, right? So he's, 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 he's saying there's something unique with these because they're born in exile. Well, what does their names mean, right? Right. Manashe was the first one. He was the firstborn of Yosef. What does his name mean? Forget. Forget what? Forget, Forget the hardships. Forget the land of my suffering. Because mm. where is he? He's been in. He's been in Egypt for the last, you know, however many years, right? And then his second son is born, Ephraim. What does Ephraim mean? Fruitful. Fruitful where? In 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 Egypt, in the land of my suffering. So that you have. You have in their names, and the fact that they were the first children born in exile, you have in their in their names a teaching for us, mm. which is the first thing is first. Don't forget while you're in exile. You know, don't let the don't let the hardships and the sufferings of being in exile. Don't let that you know, forget that. Um, don't forget where you came from. Is I guess the way you mm -hmm. think about. It. In other words. By forgetting the hardships of exile, we remember. Mm. We remember our true homeland, right? Our true mm -hmm. uh, place of origin, and our, and our, in in this case, our place of return, right? Our our, des our ultimate destination. That's that's the first thing. So the, the lesson for us is: in exile, don't let the exile um, cause you to not remember where you came from. Mm -hmm. Because for 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 Manasseh and for Ephraim, that could be easy, easily done because they never lived in, right. they were born in exile. All they've ever known is Egypt. So don't let the first thing, the first, um, the first idea here is for those of us in exile, don't forget, don't let the sufferings of where you're at cause you to not remember where you came from. In other words, forget the land of your suffering mm -hmm. in order to remember where you came from. Mm -hmm. But even more important than that, that's important and that's the right and that's the right order, right? But even more important is being fruitful in mm -hmm. exile. Meaning you are to we are to be a light right. wherever God has us, right? Whether we're you know, whether we're in the land or not. But keep in mind, his his Jacob knows that his progeny is going to be in Egypt for a long, long time to come, right? 
And if he saw, prophetically me, uh, the end of days, then he also saw the current exile. Mm. Right? He saw the Babylonian exile. Right. He saw the current exile that we're still in today. Right? And so one of the things that jumped out to me was more of a personal, um, you know, something that I could hold on to personally, which was in the blessing he's saying, he's saying for those of us in exile, be fruitful in exile. Mm-hmm. Be a light in exile. But at the same time, don't let the sufferings and the hardships of exile cause you to forget ultimately where you came from. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly what the Midrash does with their names. He, they are, I think it's that particular portion, but they talk about this idea that you have this dual responsibility. You don't want exile to become so comfortable that you don't want to go home. But you also don't want... Um, your, your response to being in exile to be so depressed and so longing for what you don't have that you end up not using this as well. You're here for a reason and you're also supposed to be getting there. You know, it's like there's this duality of the Jewish people's response to being in exile that, as you point out correctly, is part of that. And what's cool is when you mention that Jacob adopts them as his sons, I think this is also prophetic because what's fascinating about the, the, these particular ones is that Joseph as representative of the ten tribes in the north is the ones who ends up in the darkest and longest exile. Yes. Because Judah and his descendants go off to, uh, Judah's descendants go off to Babylon. They come back in 70 years. Not all of them come back, but a portion of them come back. So the other tribes are the ones that are scattered all over the planet. And yes, they've kind of trickled in here and there. I mean, I think there's some people who kind of know where they are. But um, to some degree, they're still gone. They're called the lost tribes, whether we, uh, what you take with that teaching or not. The point is that their exile never really ended. And so what, but what God promises in the prophets is that I will redeem them from the north. And the north is where these guys went. So when he's talking about ending an exile from the north, the focus is on Ephraim, Ephraim, Joseph's descendants, the other ten tribes is, he's the leader of. God says, I'll bring them back. They'll be even greater than the exodus from Egypt. You'll forget the exodus, exodus from Egypt because this will be such a huge redemption. Mm-hmm. And so I think the point that here is he's saying is these are Israel's children too. Just because they were born in exile does not mean they're not part of the family. They may have been from outside the land. I will bring them in and make them part of the family. And that's exactly what God is going to do at the end. He's going to go gather all of his people that are scattered all over the planet, bring them in, and say, these are my children. In fact, in the prophecies talking about Jerusalem and and such, that's exactly what happens. Jerusalem is uh, anthropomorphized as a person, as a woman, Zion, as a woman who says, where did all these kids come from? I don't remember giving birth to these children, but these are my kids. Where did they come from? And the idea is that they are being redeemed from the exile, brought back almost as though they had been given birth, as they'd say, in a trice. It's like, it, it, it like immediately, all of a sudden, there's a nation. And that's why when we bless our children, may you be like Ephraim Amen. and Manasseh, because where have we been for the last 2,000 years? In exile. Right? It also reminds me of a testimony that Rabbi Chaim Richmond of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem shared any of you know about him or his work, you know that he comes to the States once or twice a year. Temple Institute. Temple Institute, yes. And so he was he was sharing a testimony, this was a few years ago. Uh, he had come to the States, was going around speaking for several weeks, and this was like about this time of year, it was like it was like late December, January time frame. And I think it was mid January when he was getting ready, he and his wife were getting ready to fly back to Israel. They'd been in here for like eight weeks talking, you know, going around and talking. Uh, and the day uh, the day they were supposed to fly back they, they flew from wherever they were to New York and they were supposed to catch a flight to Tel Aviv and the, the, the day they were supposed to catch the plane to Israel big snowstorm comes in, shuts everything down, flights cancel it was, they were supposed to fly out on a Thursday well so they, they uh, spend the night in the airport and they're going to try to get on the next flight and but that they can't. That doesn't happen either. So now they're going to be in New York for Shabbat, 
So his wife's family lives in, in New York, so she calls her brother and says, hey, you know, we're stuck, can we, can we come spend Shabbos with you? And then we'll just try to catch the next flight on Sunday back to Israel. Sure, no problem. So they make their way into the city, um, and they, you know, this is like midday Friday now, and they get to her brother's house, and the brother says to Rabbi Chaim Richmond, says, hey, I need to run to the store to pick up a few things for Shabbos. Do you want to come with me? Sure, no problem. So they go to the store, and the way Chaim Richmond describes it is they're in Brooklyn somewhere, you know, or somewhere. I think it was Brooklyn. Uh, and, and they walk into this, you know, huge store that's kosher everything, you know, gourmet kosher, this and that. I mean, any kind of food, Chinese food, Italian, it's all kosher, everything you want. Also, a happy Jewish music playing, and, you know, everybody's just getting ready for Shabbat. Everybody's just, you know, life's just great. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Richmond just like stops in the middle of the store and just starts crying. And his brother-in-law's like, are you okay? I mean, he's feeling bad. What's, what's going on? And he's just like sobbing and standing in the middle of the, uh, middle of the store. And he, and he looks up at his brother and he said, the exile's not supposed to be this easy. He said, we don't even have this stuff in Israel. We don't have it this good in Israel. Why would you ever come to Israel? You're never going to leave this place because who would leave this? Right, and it's kind of that idea of in that in that what he was essentially what Rabbi Richmond was saying in that story is we've let in that case we have forgotten to a certain extent, mm. you know, yeah. where we come from because we've gotten comfortable in exile. We right. we've the kind balance. of built our own little Jerusalem here, and life's good, jobs are pretty good, nobody harasses us too much yet, right? right. So. And it's finding that pizza. balance in sorry, it's good pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Finding that balance in the in the approach in exile because that's sort of like because Jeremiah when they go to Babylon he he actually has to tell them, hey look you're going to be there for a little while you need to support the city where you're at you need to be you know his, his phrase is wherever you are be all there you know you're in exile you're going to be in exile you need to, you make the most of this don't just sit there on your hands waiting for it to end be fruitful but on the other hand you're right you don't want to lose sight of where you came from. And there is this this delicate balancing act of how do you how do you do both, um, but I think that that's kind of the idea behind Ephraim. And really, actually, to Joseph's credit, I think Joseph nails this one because Joseph does a lot of the same the same things. He's the leader in exile. I mean, of all places, like he would seem to have a lot of authority, but he also is trapped by his position. He Pharaoh. He has to, the reason why Jacob insists that Joseph make a promise. Because the Midrash, the sages comment on this, they're like, this is this is almost kind of rude. It's like, you're my son, you know, I know that you love me, but um, I'm not really going to trust you that you're going to actually bury me where I want you to bury me. Like, that just sounds ridiculous. So really what they're saying is the reason why he insists you have to swear is because he knows that when Jake, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, so my dad wants to be buried in the land of Canaan, I'm just going to be gone, I don't know, a week or so, I'll be back. You know, uh, Pharaoh's going to say, no. So Joseph has, uh, Jacob has to make Joseph promise. It's like, well, it's my dad's dying wish. He made me swear that he would do this. And it's like, okay, fine. And actually, the, the reason why the sages say this is, that this is necessary is that Pharaoh references this, the oath. When Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, my dad wants to be buried in the land of Canaan. Is it okay if I go? He says, you may do as you swore to him. In other words, Pharaoh was not going to let him go if it wasn't for the promise. So Joseph... Um, has he's bound, he's stuck in exile in a sense. But at the same time, what does he do when he dies? He says, take my bones with you. He says, swear. That you're going to take my bones with you. So the idea being that he, has, he does this balancing act so well, he's stuck in exile. He can't leave, really. And it's not time to leave. So he recognizes that he needs to be all here. He needs to succeed in exile, be fruitful in exile. But he also recognizes this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be here forever. In this case, literally, I'll be here for the rest of my life, but not forever. Right. Take my bones back, because eventually God's going to bring us home. Yes, sir. I was, uh, in reference to the, the two hands as well, you know, the, the the point here is the crossed hands and the blessing, and all that too. But there's also the phrase two hands, and you know, at the time when you read it, of course, you may not know this, but later on when you read the prophets, you know, you know that. You start to talk about Ephraim and Manasseh, and you talk about two hands, that it's really important to remember 
Ezekiel 37, and it's not two hands, it says in this one hand. And of course the two are not Ephraim and Menashe, but being represented as one, it's Ephraim and Judah, but it's being referenced as one. Ephraim is is representing both Menashe and Ephraim, the tribes of Joseph, and actually all of the northern tribes. And he says, in this one hand, I will I will take these two sticks, and they will become one. And he actually, yeah, the same energy though, because he says, take take one hand, take Judah, take another hand, take Ephraim, Ephraim. and make them one. That's right. Together, um, so we need to, we all shift into the the tribes. There's the midrash for this section is so big they actually have the normal midrash, and then they go, well, for those of you who didn't work content with that, we actually have an entire extra midrash tra- section that's the exact same chapter we just read. There was so much commentary, we couldn't put it in just one. So we had volume two. So we could spend the next, well, rest of Shabbat and next week's Shabbat talking about this past. We're not going to do that. So what we're going to do instead is try to hit some of the highlights, the really big ones, good ones, things you thought were cool, maybe some new stuff you hadn't seen before. And we'll just kind of shuffle through the tribes, because there's so much here. And then we'll try to catch a little bit at the very end with the burial and, and whatnot of Jacob and the end of Joseph, just so that we can kind of wrap up the portion. So we're in chapter 49 now, and one of the things that I wanted to point out, right now Julian and I have been reading through Kobitz Kaim's teachings on Lashon Hara, evil speech. And if you ever thought, you know, um, that evil speech was in any way simple, start reading these books, you find it's extremely complicated, because there's a lot of things you got to be careful, what you say, what you don't say. And the reason why is like slander and gossip are, are bad, but how do you define those? And what does that look like? And what are the you know, exemptions in the times when you, you shouldn't say something negative in the time that you should because it has a good purpose and so on and so forth. But one the reason why we're so careful with our speech is because in the Bible it teaches the power of life and death is in the tongue. What you say has impact. In fact, a lot of times the commentaries will, will play off these little almost funny quirks where like so-and-so said, you know, something X, and then that's exactly what happened to him like 20 years later, and they're like, see, he said that, that's why it happened to him. And so the point being is like, uh, you have to be very careful with the way that you say. So one of the things that the commentaries talk about in verse 7 of chapter 49, Jacob's mad at Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi <coughs> are like, um, they're, they're a bad mix. And they have, they wiped out the city of Shechem, they have a very intense view on life um, which can be very useful, actually. Levi, later on, his descendants, you channel that, that passion and that zeal towards godliness. His descendants become the priesthood. His descendants are the ones, Pinchas is one of his descendants, who goes in and takes out the bad guy in the, in the, in the, in the people of Israel that stops the plague because they were sinning publicly. So you get, this, you get the, the, the zeal and the passion is not bad, but it's being channeled very poorly Um, And so what Jacob does is he recognizes the power of his words. He wants to punish his sons to some degree for what they've done, but he is very careful in what he attacks. It says, accursed is their rage. What he doesn't say is, accursed are they, because that would be to attack the person. In this case, his children is kind of a big deal, but to attack the person. So instead, he attacks the action they did that was negative. And the, and the commentators point out this. They, they note that it's interesting that instead of cursing his sons for their sin, he curses the sin. This kind of goes to the, you know, hate, hate the sin, love the sinner kind of deal. And I think it's really cool because there, as, as we later see, Levi becomes like, his, his descendants are awesome. Like they do some amazing things. Because, and I think that part of that is because there is potential in these people. Now, they can make mistakes and you can, you can be very much opposed to the actions that they do. But it's a mis- it is an error to assume that because someone does something wrong, that is where they're going to end up at the end. And so Jacob sort of, in a way, even though he's focusing on their sin here, he's leaving open the, the glimmer of hope that Levi and Simeon can change and their descendants can be different and they can properly use these energies that they've so far used so poorly. Yes, sir? Well, this goes back to Joseph as well, is that he gives Joseph and Menashe gives Joseph Shechem. <laughs> and it was Shechem that had caused this issue that these two sons lose their, their real rightful place. Right. And interestingly enough, it was Joseph's reasoning when he gives Joseph Shechem is, it was by my arm and my bow that right. I took Shechem. <laughs> right. Just like, like whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. So this is actually very cool. This is very cool. 
a father is taking responsibility for his son's sin. Hmm. But then he's also rewarding the sons who didn't do that. That's right. Which is what we see here. Because if you think about it, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, those are one, two, and three. Like, if it wasn't, Reuben doesn't get the first board because he makes a mistake. So then Simeon and Levi should get it, but they, didn't make, they make some bad mistakes. So we get all the way to number four, which is Judah. And actually, yeah. All right. Um, actually, interestingly enough, verse uh, verse nine, uh, he starts to he promises this reward to Judah, and it's intriguing because they. Um, I have my own personal theory on some of the text here, so this may be totally off base, but I think it's cool, and this is my thinking. So it says, "A lion come is Judah from the prey, my son. You elevated yourself." Which is kind of an odd, like, I mean, the idea is, like, basically, like, you're a very ferocious lion, you get, you're killed, whatever else. But I kind of think that the verse, the phrasing, at least in the English, is very interesting. There's this, from, from the prey, you elevated yourself. And the thing about Judah that's fascinating is that his story is a story of redemption, too. He starts off horribly. Like, he's trying to do the right thing to save Joseph by selling him into slavery. But that was obviously a mistake, you know. And then he tries to do the right thing by keeping him safe, of his brother safe, by lying to his father about what happens to Joseph, also a mistake, and the whole mess with his daughter-in-law, I mean, but he ends up turning everything around. He elevates himself, and I think it's cool that they use from the prey, you elevated yourself, because what happens with Joseph? Joseph, when they, when he, when they lie to their father about how he died, they use, an animal, they use blood from a, from a goat, which is a form of prey to a lion, and, they, and what does Jacob assume? He's been torn by a wild beast. In other words, it's almost like Jacob, in a sense, is say, I mean, it's almost like Jacob is saying, from the prey, i.e., Joseph, the way that you lied about him, the way that you tricked me about him, the way that you treated him, you elevated yourself. You got above that character flaw, and now you have become worthy of being a leader. Which I think, I think it was kind of neat. And that's one of the beauties about the story. Yes, sir. I just want to point out that uh, the Gutnik translation came into Bellator from this passage about Joseph when your father read it to my daughter. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We had never even heard of the good Nick until your father read <laughs> this passage about you. Inspired. It was pretty pretty impressive. My all, my all my daughters, every one of them went, wow, what version is that? And I had to go back. It's good stuff. If you haven't read the good Nick translation of the blessing to Joseph, it is. Well, the Gutnik, astonished. for those who are not aware, the Gutnik is uh, one of the uh, Chabad uh, version translation. What they usually do is they're pulling in all of the traditions, so they have like, I mean, sometimes they'll read a passage and like the whole, almost the whole verse is in brackets. It's like here's what the actual text is, here's all the tradition inserted, so that you kind of figure out what you know the sages are thinking about when they're reading this passage, and it kind of all fleshes the whole story so out. It's like it's of, more like the targeting. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. So it's another 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 version. But uh, keeping in, in mind some of the extra biblical traditions associated with it, yes, sir. Uh, but just on this topic of from the prey, my son, you, did you withdraw? On the on one hand, yes, in the context of Yosef, right? Judah, while Judah, on one hand, kind of was somewhat of a ringleader, he's also the one that, when they were entertaining the thought of killing him, he's also the one that said, well, "Wait a minute, that's right. What profit is there if we kill him?" Right, let's sell it. Right. So in other words, he refrained, even though he was wrong for having incited everybody, he refrained from actually killing his brother and and instead sold him, right? Right. Likewise, likewise Judah refrained from killing Tamar. Right, yeah, true. In other words, he he could have you know, he, he had an opportunity to deny what was going on? What was going on? And she would have went to her death and a very gruesome death. Right. But yet, he withdrew from that. He, but he withdrew. He withdrew from that prey, as it were, because he he realized that she was more righteous than he was. That's cool. In fact, the sages in the midrash they talk about mostly the previous portions of Genesis. They use this imagery of Jake Judah as a lion, and traditionally. Um, Joseph is an ox. He gets referenced here as, as, as descendants get references as oxen, the horns, like Ephraim and Manasseh, two horns, kind of the same idea. And so Ju Joseph gets referenced as an ox. Judah is the lion. So they teach that the end of Genesis, where these two leaders reunite, 
and the relationship is resolved is a picture of the end times when it says that the lion will lay down with the calf. It, no, the lion and the lamb imagery is, is the traditional one, but that's actually wrong. It's the wolf and the lamb, and the lion and the, the cow, basically, is that they will, they will be in fellowship. So what they, the sages play off of this is they say that this is not just the idea that God's going like, to make the animal kingdom be friends. It's the idea that God's going to bring harmony, and he's going to bring unity to the Jewish people. Because the lion represents Judah in the southern tribes, and the cow, the oxen in this case, represents Joseph in the northern tribes. So you get this, this harmony here, um, which is interesting because previously they, when, um, when, God, when Jacob's cursing Levi and Shimon, he says, you hamstrung an ox. Well, one of the commentators um, plays off of that and says, well, this is in reference to Joseph, because they were, kind of the, they were sort of like the, uh, the instigators of the angst and animosity towards Joseph. And that's one reason why, why Joseph picks uh, Shimon as one of the guys to put in prison when they come down and visit. You know, so there's this, uh, there's this extra backstory there. But anyway, I thought that was cool. The idea of bringing them together is part of the fulfillment of the end times. Well, and that, the, the symbol of the lion and the ox also then follows through with the lion being, uh, being a symbol for um, Shep and Dabi, mm-hmm. and the ox being a symbol uh, for Meshach and Yosef. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, the fact that they um, hamstrung an ox, or in my in in my uh, uh, in, in my oral translation here, it was their will to uproot an ox, referring to Levi and Shimon, meaning that they were they were completely willing to go along with the whole scheme regarding Yosef. Like they they were happy and willing, mm-hmm. and thought it was a great idea and. And so they were uprooting Yosef, uh, but at a deeper level, they were uprooting Mashiach right. in, in, in a deeper sense. Right, and, and we're going to see that again later, the idea of like with the, something you do now can have bad ramifications later. You can't be aware of all of the impact of it. Um, one of the things here in one of these other prophecies, uh, they talk about Issachar, verses 14. And this is an interesting language here again. Um, Traditionally, Issachar is the tribe where like the scribes, the scholars of Israel come from. So they're like considered like the, the sages and the great teachers during the, the kingdom of Israel come from the tribe of Issachar. Traditionally, Issachar is the one who figures out their descendants figure out the calendar and how we can predict when all of like the holidays are supposed to land and everything. And um, so he's so they, they, they use this language. They said that he bent his shoulder to bear and became an indentured laborer. The, the tradition commentaries on this say that references study, that he becomes an indentured laborer to the Torah. He becomes someone who spends his time studying and being a scholar, and this labor he does is for the whole people on their behalf. He, they teach them. What's cool about this language is that if you read this, you actually get an allusion to the indentured servant's passage later in the Torah, because what it says is he saw tranquility, that it was good, and the land, that it was pleasant, and then in the English it says, yet he bent his shoulder, but the, there's not really like a proper contrast in the Hebrew. Uh, he bent his shoulder to bear and he became an indentured laborer. So what you get there is this idea, it's just like the indentured servant. The indentured servant has a benefit of being a slave. He has the opportunity to go free, but he looks at his life and he says, I love, my, I love my master, I love where I am, I, you know, this is great, he, this is good, I'll stay here. And because of that, he become, they, they pierce his ear and now he's a servant forever. Paul, in his teachings, plays off of this. He's basically saying, hey, we're free men. We've been redeemed. But we become, we become an indentured laborer, indentured servant to Hashem, to Mashiach, because we are like them. We saw that our master was good. This is a good place to be. And so we chose voluntarily to be a servant. So Issachar is doing the same thing here. He is seeing the benefits of Torah study and of the, the commandments of God and so he's choosing voluntarily to be that servant to study, to dig, to research, to teach, um, because he sees it's a good thing. And you can get that some of that language. He saw tranquility that was good, the land that it was pleasant. And that kind of reminds you of some of the, the teaching of the Torah. You know, the, the, the Torah's ways are ways of pleasantness. You get the idea of taste and see that the Lord is good. There's this imagery. So again, this idea that for those of us here, it's like, um, yeah, you know, sometimes it's a drag. You don't want to read your Bible. You don't want to study. You don't want to do those things. But we've got to be like Issachar to recognize that there is so much blessing and benefit. It is pleasant. It is good. And then to and that means we got to be a servant. That means we got to do things we don't always feel like doing, 
but there's such a reward that comes with it. Yes, sir. But, I mean, obviously the, the new brush loves this because they're talking, talking about them. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're talking about the sages, you know, where Usha and hey, this is Issachar, this makes perfect sense. But and, and I completely agree. But at an even greater level, you know, this is this is the these are the origins that the men from Galilee who gave us the apostolic scriptures, this is their origin. Huh. So Issachar, even though they are all not from the tribe of Issachar, this region is the place of huh. of cool. learning and deep and deep understanding into the Messiah. That's very cool. I like that. That's very Let's, nice. Before you move on, though, I want to go back to, to Judah just one second. It talks about, um, not that Judah. Okay. Uh, it talks about, it says, The scepter should not depart from Judah, nor from the ruler's staff, from between his feet. And between his feet is a, is a, is a, uh, is a uh, reference to uh, uh, genetic offspring, not adopted offspring, not like, not like Menashe, even though they were genetically related to Jacob. These are, these are direct absolutely direct descendants. So the notion here is, and this, and especially, even though it may not be our recognition, but this time of year recognizing that Messiah is a son of David is, is extremely important in reference to this, because it's not just like, well, he was kind of like adopted, you know, Joseph was his adopted father, and he was from the tribe of, no, no, he is from the line of David, period. All right, correct. He is the, the inheritor of all those blessings. Um, and then we, uh, we move along, and again, you throw in something if you want to, I'm just trying to keep us going here. One of the things I thought stood out this year, um, in verse 26, he's blessing Joseph, and Jacob all of a sudden diverges from his blessings. Jacob does this a couple times, he has this random, you know, I wait for your salvation, no God, and it's like, in fact, actually, that's a good place for the parasha to break, they're like, Okay, this is the next Bible. Yeah, we don't know why he says this here, but anyway. Um, but in this particular portion, he kind of does it again, sort of. He, he tells, he's talking to blessing Joseph, and all of a sudden he briefly, like, I mean, he, he ties it into the blessing, but he briefly diverges by saying, the blessings of your father surpass the blessings of my parents, the endless bounds of the world's hills. Now, and then he says, look, it be upon Joseph. So he ties it into the blessing. But if you think about it, this should stand out to you because just recently... Jacob gets a chance to introduce himself to Pharaoh. And what does he say? The years of my life have been short and miserable, really. They haven't been as, as productive, as good as my forefathers' years. Well, here he says, the blessings of your father surpass the blessings of my parents. He's saying, now I've received more than they had, which is actually kind of weird, because you're looking at going, well, that's odd, just, you know, what, 17 years earlier, you're talking a totally different story. Um, <coughs> one of the things that's beautiful about the way God works in life, this passage again, remember, is called Vayahi, and he lived. It's all about the death of Jacob and Joseph, but it's really about, um, about, the, about life kind of in spite of death. And really, one of the things that's beautiful about this, the teachings of the sages, the commentators say that jo Jacob's last 17 years were so perfect that basically it kind of like, it's almost like they over, over, overwhelmed all of the bad stuff before. They were fantastic. And so Jacob ends his life, instead of being like he was before Pharaoh, where he says, my life's been miserable and short and really hasn't come close to attaining what my fathers had, he's now able to say, I've received more blessings than they ever had. And the reason, I think, is that God has helped, God has redeemed his life, his circumstances. And there's this picture in the, in the prophets, this, this idea that God tells them that I will restore the locust of Eden. In other words, I have punished you because of your sin. You've been sent to exile, but I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to do it in such a dramatic way that you will forget about all the suffering you had before. And that's exactly what happens here for Jacob. His, the end of his life is so good, he's able to let go of all of the suffering he's had up until this point, and he ends on such a happy note. And if you think about it, it makes sense. One of the things that the sages say about the reason why he says that to Pharaoh in the, in the Midrash, in the Jewish commentary, is that Jake, Judah, or Jacob is, is the, one of the few patriarchs who gets that he's part of a global mission. Like, I mean, obviously Abraham and Isaac get that, but their, their blessings and their reward was really tied to them. It was about them. It was about getting them started, getting them moving. Jacob somehow is connected much as the, as the father of the 12 tribes. He's connected to a bigger picture. The fact that the world is still messed up is a burden for him because it's his, he is now the first, in a way, of the mission to change everything. 
because he is he and his children are the seed that are going to bring the light to bring the blessing that was promised to Abraham so because of that Jacob feels this global weight so it's really cool that here as he's blessing his sons in this this messianic end times prophecy as he's looking ahead to when everything's going to get fixed that's when he says I have more blessings than my father's because now he sees it now he has the picture he knows God is going to right all of the wrongs and his mission will eventually be accomplished. So, um, what we're doing here on time? Getting close to the end. Um, so one of the things uh, as we continue to, to move through here, um, just wanted to quickly point out uh, chapter 50, verse 1, Jacob dies. Joseph falls in the next, his neck and weeps over him. Joseph is a weepy guy. And apparently it comes with the name because if, if you're really cool and a powerful leader and weepy, you name Joseph. So you know this happens. Um, they uh, that interestingly enough they have this this burial, and Pharaoh says you can leave to go bury your father in, in the land of Canaan. We already talked a little bit about that. And um, remember I mentioned earlier the importance of being careful what you do because it could have ramifications way past what you imagine. When God gives us commandments, he lays out very clearly right and wrong. But sometimes God wants us to learn wisdom, which is different from simply the black and white right and wrong. It's the understanding that maybe circumstantially this was a bad idea. And sometimes you don't see that right away. And that's one reason why we have the book of Genesis. Because the book of Genesis helps to flesh out what a lifestyle of righteousness looks like. It's more than just doing all of the commandments all the time. It's about having the right attitude. It's about doing it the right way and treating people the right way as you do them. It's about these interpersonal relationships that are going to have so many variables we couldn't possibly give a commandment for every single situation you could experience. So um, wisdom says sometimes that you have to learn the hard way or you, hopefully you learn from somebody else's mistakes. So in this case, Joseph makes... A mistake. We can uh, we can dig him a little bit here. Uh, it says um, that they go off to Canaan, and then there's this odd verse. It says all of Joseph's household. This is verse eight, chapter fifty. All of Joseph's household, his brothers, his father's household, only their young children, their flocks, and their cattle did they leave in the region of Goshen. Well, the sages point out this look sounds familiar. We go ahead to the next book. What does Pharaoh do? Moses says, let us go. We're going to go worship God. We'll be back. Well, he doesn't really say we'll be back, but he's kind of like, we just want to go out and do this worship God thing. You decide what you think is going to happen after that. And Pharaoh goes, okay, you can go. But your flocks and your herds, they, they got to stay. Your, your children, they got to stay here. And Moses is like, well, we obviously have to bring our kids. So then Pharaoh says, you know, next plague comes through. Pharaoh says, okay, 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 you can take the kids, but you got to leave all the animals here. And Moses said, no, 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 we have to bring all the animals with us, too, because we, we don't even know what sacrifices to offer, you know. So, and then Pharaoh is furious. This is the, this is the ninth plague before the, the, the killing of the firstborn. Pharaoh just loses it. He's like, the next time you see my face, you're a dead man. And the idea is, uh, the sages tie this in. They say, Pharaoh's not working out of a vacuum here. Pharaoh's recalling the previous Pharaoh, or maybe it's the same Pharaoh, depending on your tradition, that... The last time you wanted to leave Egypt and you left for, for some sort of religious purpose, you came back and what did you do? You left your kids and your, your cattle here. And so the reason why I bring this up and the reason why I talk about the idea of, of unintended consequences is you have to think about sometimes your actions, whether it's not necessarily right or wrong to do what you did. It wasn't morally wrong for Joseph to leave the, the children and the kids there, uh, the, the animals there. But the message it sent was not good. The message it sent is the only people that matter in the family are the people who are old enough to understand what's going on. The little ones, they get left behind. Moses figures this out. when okay, He has an exchange with Pharaoh. But then later when they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, some of the tribes that are going to stay on the, the right side, on the Jordan side, they say, we're going to build cities pens for our animals and in cities for our children, they get the order out of, out of order. They start with the animals and they end with the kids. And Moses very gently repeats what they say, but he says it in reverse. He says, okay, you build cities for your kids and pens for your animals. Because Moses understands the symbolism is important. The imagery is important. 
how you pre what you message you send is important. That's why I say it's not morally wrong necessarily, but we have to think about the ramifications of what we do. This ties into more than just what we do with our kids. It also ties into the actions that we make. It's like so if you when you justify doing something, you need to think what message does it send? Okay, so if I listen to this song myself, will that make it difficult for me to adjust what music my kids listen to? Or something to that effect, you know? Think about the, the, the ultimate result of what you're doing. Because the message they sent here was the kids aren't important. So when the later Pharaoh is hearing the same offer, hey, I want to leave, he essentially retorts back, okay, but I think you already told me the kids aren't that important, so how about you leave them here? This is actually one of the, the major lies and, and, and scary um, things that the, I think the secular world tries to do. They say, okay, just give us your kids. Put them in front of the TV, put them in front of movies, send them to school, send them, like, we, we don't want you. You can do whatever you want. You go worship God. Go do your thing. Just give us your kids. And that's exactly kind of what Pharaoh sort of does here. He's like, just let me keep the kids. Yeah, you guys can do your thing. And Joseph makes a mistake here. And that's not to say that parents and kids do things together all the time. We throw an annual Hanukkah party, this couple's only, because we recognize you need some time to yourselves. That's great. But think about how far to take that, and think about maybe the times when that shouldn't be true. And I think in this case, a funeral for a patriarch is an appropriate time to have the kids there. I've got you and then a baby. I cannot understand, since they are not slaves, and Joseph is second only to Pharaoh, why he didn't go to Pharaoh and say, it's been fun, it's been great, <laughs> I'm going to go bury my dad, bring the family back home. We're going to take a couple of years' worth of food that I've set you up. You are good to go. And by the way, you own all of Egypt now. <laughs> so uh, thanks thanks for the party. <laughs> I just don't get it. I, I know, it wasn't meant to be. I know it wasn't meant to be, but i tell you what, if it were me, and my name was Joseph, hmm. I probably would have tried to make that pitch. <laughs> Of course, it would have changed the rest of the Bible, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't get it. I think I do. Yes, it's my thought. Right. I think Joseph is, is a prophet, and he knows, obviously, that yeah. they're going to be in exile. But he has set it up so that Pharaoh owns Egypt, and a future Pharaoh is going to give all of it to Joseph's to descendants and his Cousins, they plundered Egypt. so they were going to plunder Egypt. So the wealth of the world is going to be taken. That's good. That works. And Joseph seems to do a number of things prophetically. Even some of the traditions around some of Joseph's actions, they try to tie that in. They point out that he does the the priesthood doesn't give up their land. So that apparently ties in. Apparently, the, the Jewish priests also were given like some, they weren't required to work and things. You know, this, the tradition holds that. So you get that idea that Joseph is sort of like putting the pieces in place. So Joseph does seem to get that. And that's why he, I think that is why he doesn't leave. Because you're right. Logically speaking, it's like, wait, we're already here. Yeah. Why don't we just stay here? And, you know, you know, of course, at this point, we don't know how big their people are. And apparently all of the elders of Egypt go with them. So it's it's kind of, you know, it's almost kind of like being on parole. You know, we're letting you go. We got the ankle bracelet still on. <laughs> so, so just go back to that whole idea that the secular world says gives you kids. And, and most everybody in this room knows it, but just to just to reinforce the idea is, is the the notion that that we should bow to Dewey's system where children are to be educated by an elite is just absurd. But you, you think the religious world is bought into it as well. I mean, you can you can go across, you know, it doesn't matter synagogue, church, whatever. It's like oh no, no, the kids have to learn at their level, and that's it's just it's wrong. It's sure. it's absolutely contrary to the biblical model because the biblical model, as you pointed out, Moses says bring everybody out. You know, right. if we're on the plains of Moses, bring everybody out. Everybody's going to hear this. Right. You know, little children, big, everybody's going to hear all of Deuteronomy. And by the way, do not sit down while I do this. <laughs> and actually, I think one of the things we learned from this is that it's nothing, there's not, a, there's not an error to teach someone at their level, but there are times when you want to push someone to a higher level. And the, the mistake I think that's oftentimes taken with kids is the idea that they can't, they can't achieve more. We set the bar so low they unexpectedly meet the bar. Well, it, it's not just the bar. It's that there is an expectation that you will follow this path. Right. So I'm, I'm not just putting you here to learn. I'm putting you here so you see that guy up in the front. Right. 
And that's your model. That's what your goal is. Agreed. You know? And that's why it's not just me. There's 15 right. other guys here that are just exactly. like me. Right. And I think that's one thing that the, the message, talking about the message being sent. That's why I think that it's a mistake to leave the kids in Egypt for the burial of the, the forefather. Absolutely. If you think about it, logically speaking, the last place I would want little kids is probably a funeral. I mean, it's like they're probably going to be confused. All these people are crying. They don't understand it. Death and life. We're going to get the parents get some very awkward questions on the way home. Daddy, where, where is where is Grandpa? You know, all this kind of stuff. But actually, the, the, the messages that are being conveyed are very good. Yeah. It's about the idea that we're burying him here. Why? Talk about the resurrection from the dead. That the land of Israel is important. This was your grandfather. He's the, he, is the, he is the forebearer of your tradition, of your culture, of your heritage. This is who you are. All of this language got lost True. for these children because they didn't get to participate. And that's why I say that like there is, a, there is something of a balance here. I have no problem with parents spending some time alone. I think, in fact, it's healthy for parents to do some things without their kids because they, that relationship has to be nourished too. But there, I think it's beautiful that when we sit in here and pray for two hours twice a month, we've got little ones here that can't read. Some of them can't talk. Some of them are trying to talk. Um, and it's beautiful. And amazingly enough, not these two. Um, <laughs> I was like, what? I meant the... Uh, they used to be there, but they're not there anymore. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron stood today for... Uh, oh, that's that's right. right. There we go. That's right. But see, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. is like these guys were in that camp, but because they grew up in an environment that said, no, no, we, we expect more from you. He's a bar mitzvah. He's going to be, sometimes pretty soon. And that's the thing. Is you, you start, you set that bar high, you raise them with the expectations, you involve them in those imagery, in those big moments because it's important to keep them in the family, important to keep them experiencing the same things. Mm -hmm. um, I know we're getting late, so I want to kind of wrap up here. Um, and what I love, we get to the end here, and Joseph um, and, and Joseph's brothers, they come to him, and it's kind of funny, they kind of learn from Joseph. Joseph goes to Pharaoh's household to get Pharaoh to let him go to Canaan, kind of like get the buddy, kind of, hey, can you tell Pharaoh, you know, it's why I need a favor. So now Joseph's brothers are like, wanted you to forgive us. <laughs> you know, um, they're very scared. They don't know what's going to happen. But Joseph Joseph here is the, is the ultimate forgiver. He, he acknowledges, and how do you do it? He does it the only way you really can forgive, which is to say, God's in charge. Because logically, he has every right to be angry. There's no explanation for what they did that could justify it. The only thing he can do is that I, don't, I, I am not in God's place. God uh, is, is the one who will take care of what you did, but he did it okay for me. So this was okay, and I can forgive you on his behalf, or his, because of what he did. If there's any verse in this book yeah. that we should recognize points us to Messiah Yeshua yeah. and his response when he returns, it is this here. Yeah. It is that his people, his own brothers, sold him away to die. And God meant it for good. Mm. And that he does, in fact, forgive them. This is, the, this is the picture of redemption for which we wait. And the reason why we put, as Gentiles, put ourselves in this no man's land between Gentiles who don't have any clue about God's word and what he, what he desires and Orthodox Judaism which by and large does not want to talk to us because we're not, we will not go through that conversion process and forsake the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Why would we do that? But to testify to this line right here. And the interesting because of course um, uh, regardless of, of kind of the perspective on an individual level, nationally we know, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. As a nation there will be this redemption of the whole, of the whole group, mm -hmm. right? Um, consequences individually is a separate issue, but as a group, they're going to they're going to be redeemed. And what we see here is that actually this imagery it ties into that. It says that thus he comforted them and spoke to their heart. That language is straight out of Hosea chapter two. Hosea chapter two, God says to the people of Israel, "I'm going to devastate you because of your sins." And then it says, "I will take you out in the wilderness and I will speak to your heart. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to bring you back." That comes back to Isaiah, "Comfort my people." You get this language, this imagery of redemption. This is, in many ways, I, th I think you're right, a picture of the Jewish people, as it says in Zechariah, they see him, 
get pierced, and they weep as for their only son. They recognize, oh no, we got it wrong. And, and at least, it, like I said, regardless of how you look at it individually, corporately, as a corporate unit, God does exactly what Joseph does here. He forgives them. He says, well, what you meant for evil as a group, I meant for good, and this is going to be okay. And he brings them in and now they're family again. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their disobedience is for our blessing. Yeah. And God will remove iniquity from Yahweh. Right. And if you think about, um, I mean, obviously, we, we, the Jewish people being... The, the focus of the redemption here is what we're focusing on. But in a sense, we are all guilty of Messiah's death. He only died for us because of us. So it's like you get that um, the same thing as the sense being spoken to us as well. That even though his death was on our behalf because of our sin, God forgives us and, and redeems us anyway because it was his plan all along. Um, at the very end here, uh, really, really cool. Joseph gets to this, this, this point. And Joseph actually, one of the things I really have to give Joseph a lot of credit for, he does a good job of learning the good things his dad does, and he repeats them. So Jacob dies, and right before he dies, he brings his brothers in, and he brings his children in, and he says, bury me in the land of Canaan, which is exactly what Joseph also does. But he also reminds them that God's going to be with you, and God's going to bring you out of here. That Joseph presents the same message, slightly different, but basically the same concept. And, And it's cool because the sages talk about this is, the, this is the key word. This is the password. This is the code. Because it says that God will remember you. When Moses, in a couple chapters in Exodus, tells God, look, it's been a long time since they've heard from you. Uh, how are they going to believe you know, me? I've been out for the last 40 years herding sheep. I'm going to come in and go, God spoke to me. And they're all going to look at me and go, yeah, right. Um, and so God, he says, well, how do, what do I tell them? Who, who talked to me? And God says, he uses this language of like, the I am that I am. But he uses this idea that like, um, the God of your forefathers. He uses this idea of, I have remembered them. I have seen their sufferings. He uses these key words from Joseph's promise to them. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's like there's this like spoken, you know, secret prophecy that goes throughout the people for all these years, and now, now somebody comes in and they, they, they give, they deliver it. And actually, even Messiah is the same thing. I remember one time it's like talking, talking to somebody. It's like this riding in on Jerusalem on a donkey is not hard. I mean, lots of people do it. There are all lots of donkeys. Not today. But for some odd reason, only one guy did that in a way that got attention, which is weird. <laughs> like, why was there only one dude that did that? Like, surely, I mean, think about all the false messiahs over history. Not one of them tried doing that. I, I don't know why. I would have done that. Donkeys are a dime a dozen. Yeah, you would think. Give me a donkey. In fact, I, Jesus doesn't even own the donkey that he rides. He borrows it for somebody else. I mean, it's like, it doesn't cost anything. The point that I'm getting at is there's that code word. There's the prophecy, that, that, that special thing that says, that, I mean, because anybody can say, God's remembered you, he's visiting you, follow me, I am going to take you out of Egypt. Anybody could do that. Nobody does. Why? Because God's put this in place on purpose. This is the keyword. this is the, the, the password, the, the, the get into the group phrase to let them know that God is ready to redeem them. Same thing with Messiah Yeshua. And he fulfills these prophecies. Most of them are actually not that complicated. They're not hard. A lot of people do, some of them, but the only guy who did it in a way that stood out, the only guy who did enough of them to really have that stamp of approval was Messiah Yeshua. So he proves in the same way that Moses will later prove by doing these things. In fact, I think, in my opinion, the simplicity of the prophecies only reinforces their validity. Because otherwise, it's stupid. Why would you prophesy something that anybody could do at the risk that somebody wrong will do it? But this is that, that, I think, is the proof that it's legitimate. And so how does it end? It ends that he dies, and they embalmed him, and he was placed in the coffin in Egypt. In other words, Joseph dies, the end of the story is done, but he's been embalmed and placed in the coffin in Egypt. This is picture, this idea that his journey's not over. So what we leave is, you're going to leave with this, this to be continued you know, it's like you get to the end of the episode, Jerry Seinfeld talks about this, and you realize they don't have enough time to finish the story. Oh no, it's going to be a to be continued. And um, 
Messiah. exactly what we get here. Messiah is still in exile. Messiah is still in exile. And that is actually this verse at the end of chapter 50, I think summarizes where we are now. We have already had this moment of, we know what the end is, we're going to get out of exile, but right now we're in that in-between stage, in the midst between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, but the promise is there. It wasn't, it, it's not, it doesn't end with, and they stayed in Egypt. It ends with the idea that the, 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 the message that's being presented, the imagery that's being used says, the journey's not over yet. And that's exactly what we get next. So, any other final comments? Dad, can you pray for us? Father, we thank you that you are good and gracious God. And that you have uh, not left us in exile without knowing. You have given us uh, details uh, and the assurance that you are the one who keeps his word. That if we will believe what you say and we act upon it, that we can be assured that you will complete it. Father, we thank you that you have uh, secured our redemption through the act of Messiah. And Father, that you will uh, accomplish our redemption at a future time, as you have said. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 Good shout everyone. Yes. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. I should expect. Next time I'll be giving you a picture.